Welcome to the Coach's Edge podcast, dedicated to teaching, sharing, and learning the game. I'm your host, Steve Kramer. Thank you for joining us today. On this episode, Carissa Sane joins the show. She is the head coach, recently taken over at Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago. Prior to that, she spent 12 years at the University of Chicago as a head coach or assistant coach. They made multiple runs in the NCAA tournament at a handful of league titles, league championships, and she has a unique background. It's a master's in exercise physiology. And on this episode, she really talks about how her experiences and her knowledge as uh, athletic development coach, her background in performance enhancement and injury prevention, tie right into how she serves her players throughout the entire year as a head college basketball coach. Let's get to the show. I'd like to welcome Coach C from the Illinois Institute of Technology to the Coach's Edge podcast. Coach, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, anytime. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I know a lot of coaches are going to benefit from our conversation, even the conversations that we had uh, before we hit, hit record here. But before we get into that, can you briefly share a little bit of your coaching background and experience? Sure. Um, so I, I grew up the daughter of a high school coach. He coached girls basketball, but a variety of others. So he was a three sport coach for a long time for about 31 years. And so grew up around coaching, grew up in, you know, in our, the school that I went to and stuff like that. Um, and went to, um, Carnegie Mellon university to pursue, um, uh, thought I was pursuing math and science, loved those two things. And um, when I left, I had a degree in chemical engineering and thought I was going to physician assistant school to, you know, kind of go down the orthopedics route. Um, super interested in that stuff, had done about 3,500 hours of, you know, training in the athletic training room with our staff at Carnegie Mellon and um, just really interested in the science side of it. Um, and I got into PA school and I also got a full-time coaching offer at um, Carnegie Mellon to be an assistant and decided to go the coaching route. Um, and the rest is kind of history. So I was at Carnegie Mellon as an assistant for three years. Then I went to the University of Chicago as an assistant for four years. And then I was the head coach at the University of Chicago for eight years. And now I'm, uh, I've just transitioned over to Illinois Institute of Technology. So it's kind of my first two months here. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's kind of my background a little bit. So you've had success everywhere you've gone. You were a successful college athlete. Um, you've won a handful of league titles as an assistant, as a, as a head coach. You made some runs in the NCAA tournament. And then what also really interests me with your background is that you have this athletic development background. And I know that's really what we're going to dig into with this episode. Yeah. And as we were talking before the show, I think this area is something that more programs at the professional and the college level are going to get into where it may not be the head coach like yourself, because I think you're really ahead of the game in a lot of ways. But many programs are going to have at least one person on staff who has this type of background on top of all of the coaching experience. Do you think that's where it's going to go? Yeah, I think 
think it's it's interesting um you know as we were saying before i think um it's interesting how cyclical things are and um i think over the last 20 years since i've kind of gotten into this to the coaching and also the athletic development stuff they've kind of paralleled um the whole way through my career and so i've never kind of stopped doing one or the other they've just kind of grown together with me and um it's interesting because i got into it because you know, 20 years ago, if you wanted to be a division three coach, <clears throat> there was no such thing as a strength and conditioning coach, either in your department or with your, co with your sport. Right. And so, especially on the division three level. And so, um, you know, my thought was if I'm going to be a really successful basketball coach, then I better understand how, how I want to train and, and program our student athletes. I know it's voluntary, but I want to give them the best stuff that I can give them to get better because they're only with me 19 weeks of the year, right? I'm only in the gym with them 19 weeks where I can be there coaching them and developing them. So I've got to make sure that I've got this figured out for, you know, the other 30 weeks of the year. Um, and so that's kind of where it started for me. Then it's become very compartmentalized. You know, now, you know, the huge programs have a million people on staff and they've got an athletic trainer and they've got a nutritionist and they've got, you know, all of these people. And I don't know how many times those people are sitting down in a room together discussing kind of what's going on. And do you have a head coach that's willing to listen to all those different pieces? And so um, now, you know, and it, it will be interesting to see if it starts to become one again um, in, in a way that you're talking about, like not necessarily compartmentalizing them as medical staff, but putting them on your coaching staff. Um, you know, and, and knowing that people who truly are good coaches of movement and athletic development, that they see things differently. Um, they see your athletes differently. Um, they see fatigue differently. They see movement differently. And, um, and that can be an asset for sure. Yeah, I think you know, one of our contributors to the Coach's Edge program that we're developing is Drew Lehman. He's a college player. He's the assistant uh, men's coach at Trine University but he also has his master's in strength and conditioning. And I just think that there's mm -hmm. a lot of power because I've, I've heard the conversations with the coaches who have been like, you know, we gotta, we have to see what they think, you know, and referring it very like we're different groups and really should be all on the same, same team. Yeah. But if you can have a staff where at least one of those person people has that background themselves, it, it can really naturally become part of, how you program the 52 weeks out of the year instead of, okay, here's our 19 and we got to fit some of the strength and conditioning. And then we're going to, you know, try to send them out and see the feedback that we get from the training staff, the other 30 weeks out of the year. So with that background, how does that impact big question, but how does that impact the preseason, the season, the postseason, the off season loaded questions so we can break those up into parts if you like, but what makes your program different? Yeah, I think, um, you know, really it's just, it is a little bit about the progression. I think a lot of times that can get lost. Um, I think people want to, uh, you know, through no fault of their own, if they don't have a background in it and they don't have a baseline of knowledge, um, you know, they just want to kind of get it off their plate and unload it a little bit. So you have a lot of people who will just say, hey, here's what you're doing this summer. And to me, the summer is, you know, almost three very different segments. Um, and what you're developing in each of those segments is a little bit different. And so there are moments where, yeah, it is, is 
the programming's a bit more running. There's um, segments where the programming's a bit more strength focused. There's a program, there's a piece where, you know, you really start to kind of mesh those things together um, because once it's basketball season, you know, the preseason is, okay, we've got to make sure we're running, jumping, doing some sort of strength. And I have a way of kind of sneaking those things in a little bit. Um, you got to really be doing everything every day because that's what playing basketball is, you know, and that's why basketball is such an interesting sport, right? You have all of these um, different dynamics from a, from a physical perspective, let alone all the team and culture and <laughs> X's and O's and everything else. It's, it's such a great game that way, but it, you know, by the time you get to the preseason, you better be able to run and jump at a decently high volume, um, you know, pretty consistently. And then you've also got to be, you know, your abilities technically, right? To shoot, to dribble, to pass, to, to read the defense. Um, fatigue has a, has a funny way of making those things worse, you know? So you've got to, over the summer, progress each of these components, and then they've got to all come together by the time it's that preseason time. And so, um, and I think a lot of coaches feel very rushed in their preseason too. Um, you know, I, I, I think that is one of the benefits for me is I, I don't necessarily feel as crammed um, in those first couple of weeks of the season because hopefully we've done stuff right outside of the basketball court that we can control that are putting us in a better position to take advantage of the, like once we can have a basketball in our hands, we're not doing a ton of conditioning without a basketball, right? Like everything we're doing, the drills, the design are all um, set up in such a way that the conditioning will only get better. Um, you know, we don't have to like designate time for conditioning or designate time for strength training. I hide the strength training in the warm up, you know, in the cool down, you know, stuff like that. I think that's great that you're combining. What would, what would some of that look like for a coach who's like, yeah, we do our lifting over here from, for this amount of time. And then we come over and it's very compartmentalized. I think every coach would like to cover all the bases in a shorter amount of time. And so how are you able to yeah, totally. do a little bit of that with your program? Yeah. So, um, I, I do a, a games approach a lot. Um, I do use games pretty consistently. Um, and there is a, as soon as you, um, as soon as you ask your kids to compete or as soon as they know they're competing, the intensity tends to get itself to pretty close to game speed, you know, what we call game speed in a basketball game. And so um, I try to use a games approach to, um, you know, once we are in season to work on that conditioning. Um, so I have different basketball games that I've, I've still, and they're not even always basketball games. They're tag games from, you know, elementary PE teachers that I've stolen. Um, they're you know, games-based approaches. Brian McCormick has a ton of games-based, um, you know, just different approaches and stuff like that. Um, I use some of his drills. And so we try to get them to compete um, very early in the practice um, to train some of that intensity, to train, um, you know, and to see what they look like at, at the start of a practice, you know, to see how sharp they are at the start. Um, and that also helps us not waste time. So a lot of, a lot of coaches don't they leave the warm up as this like aloof piece of, you know, 10 to 12 minutes that they don't really use. And um, that's not the case for me. It's, you know, I want the warm up to, it's got to be progressive in nature. You've got to, that's where I hide a lot of things. So 
um, you know, we'll, we'll bring out the med balls, not heavy med medicine balls, but just, you know, four pound med balls. And we do different series, squat and press series. We do lunge and reach series, just different things that you're really sneaking in a strength component when you do those things. But they're also doing it in a way that helps progress kids. We throw the medicine balls. Okay, now you're talking about high-level coordination, right? You're getting them to explode off the ground. Okay, that's plyometric training. You know, we talk about landing low. Okay, now you're talking about landing mechanics, you know. So in the course of the warm-up, we're hitting a lot of things that while we're increasing our intensity and being ready to go and you know my warm-ups tend to be a little bit longer about 15 minutes but they're competing at 15 minutes and so and they know that so the warm-up tends to progress them to that point where they can compete right away and in that warm-up is where i hide a lot of the stuff that i think is really important for them to do every day um you know especially when i'm coaching females that landing mechanics piece is a big deal, you know, in terms of ACL prevention, the strength piece is a big deal for females um, in terms of, of that stuff too. And so just trying to, you know, and you keep it fresh too. There are plenty of variations, different things that you can do to, to just kind of get them, you know, that first 20 minutes of practice is, is really important for me um, in setting the tone um, and really developing them quite a bit. So you're, you're competing, you're getting your warm up in, you're getting some of the strength and conditioning aspect in all within 15 minutes. I mean, I love that. It's a great yeah. way to save so much time and being able to incorporate it with the practice, I think is great for the mindset of an athlete. Like this is part of the yeah. practice. It's not something that's, that's separate. And so as you're in the yeah. season and you're working with, with your team, you talked a little bit about the first 15 minutes. How does a practice like yours look different than maybe a normal college program would? Um, I don't, I don't get to see a ton of other college programs, but I can, so I don't know from a comparison sake, I just know what I've experienced. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I think is really common is for coaches to write a 90 minute or two hour practice and expect the kids to go really hard the whole time. And what I don't think people realize is your, you know, your team is managing that time, whether you believe it or not. And so, um, you know, when they know they have a two hour stretch of practice, they're, they're saying like, okay, I got to find a way to go like just hard enough. So coach knows that I'm going hard, but I cannot go, you know, all out because I got two hours, you know, like that's like, you know, that's a lot. So one of the things that we try to do is really, um, I vary the levels of the intensity of the practice. And so we'll talk a lot about teaching drills, training drills, um, competitive drills. Competitive drills are the highest intensity, right? Um, the teaching drills are when they get to recover, but not check out, right? Teaching drills are highly mental. You know, they're slower speed, but they're, they require some thought. We're thinking, we're talking about different reads. You're actually making them go through you know, whatever it is that you're trying to teach them, the training drills are kind of a little bit higher intensity, but more closer to, to a, to a speed where, you know, it's just the speed where I want them to find success with what we just taught, but also still fail a little bit, um, because that's how they learn. Right. And so, um, you know, so those training drills are kind of in between. And so we really talk about these varying intensities so that when they know it's time to compete, they're, you know, over the course of 19 weeks, when you say compete, by the time you get to week, 
you know, 13, 14, 15, you've been doing this for three months. Compete means go hard, right? And you give them that opportunity, but you also give them the space to say like, whew, that was challenging. You know, like I need to recover from that a little bit. And so, um, you know, that's where you sneak in some other, you know, different things, whether it's free throws or um, like I said, teaching drills or, you know, certainly when we get to the bulk of the competitive season, you're talking about specific situations in games, you know, like, Hey, listen, on Sunday, we had a situation where we couldn't get that, you know, you guys remember this, we were in our zone and this is what happened. And so you spend, you know, three or four minutes talking to them about a specific situation, but they just listen and they're, you know, cardiovascularly, they get to kind of just like settle in a little bit and come back to normal a little bit uh, before you ask them to compete again. And that flows into a little bit of our, our culture too, and how we play and how we hope to play, which is playing a lot of people, but you're not going to play 40 minutes. You know, if, if I'm doing things right, my hope is you aren't playing 40 minutes. You should be playing about 20 to 25, but those 20 to 25 should be a really valuable high intensity 20 to 25. And if everyone we throw out there has a higher level of competing, you know what I mean? And training then the people we're going against. I like our odds. So it kind of all fits together a little bit, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, I, it makes perfect sense. I love that you have it from, you know, the, a teaching, a teaching drill, a competitive drill, a, tr a training drill, those different pieces. If we think about that as a coach, that's going to help us outline our whole season. It's going to help us outline and, and create the practice plans each day so that our our players are learning they're improving their skill development we're still competing hard and at the end of the day you know i think most of the time if a coach finishes practice and they're like man that was a terrible practice it's probably the coach's fault right not the not the <laughs> players right like like maybe yeah. there was something I, that we did as that. a coach to you know tweak how we went about it you know, all of these different things. And, you know, that's not even getting into, you know, the vibe that a, co a coach can have. You got to be, be positive and, and, you know, fight for your culture that you want to build with, with your players yeah. every single day. So if a coach, yeah. a coach calls you up, all right, and they're saying, Coach C, I need some advice. The past couple years, our team, as we've been going through the season, it seems like we're kind of running out of gas by the end of the season. And sure. we're not as strong. We don't seem to have that pop like we had in maybe the, the middle of the season when we were playing yeah. our best. What advice would you have for that coach? Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think, well, it's, it sounds like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. In some ways you're not doing enough. And in some ways you're probably doing too much. Um, you're probably doing too much of the same thing over and over again. Right. And so what I mean by that is, um, you know, I, I feel like there's a tendency, especially, and I feel it too, the pressure of being a head coach or being any coach, right. Assistants feel it too, but like, oh my gosh, this laundry list of things that we aren't good at, right? Every coach has that list. And so you always want to work on that list. But at the same time, there have to be some other elements of it. And the mental exhaustion of a kid hearing like, okay, we got to go back to that passing. We got to, you know, we really got to work on these reads and you got to keep it fresh for them a little bit. You know what I mean? And so we're probably doing too much basketball. We're probably doing too much basketball at 80%, you know, of their effort, like we're asking for too much of their effort for too long over too long of a stretch in the same arena, 
you know, in the same practice environment. So can we, can you as a coach start to get comfortable? And this is where it's really challenging for coaches. Can you get comfortable with giving up 10 to 15 minutes of the practice of the basketball and try to focus the energy somewhere else? And so, you know, the other things like when kids run out of gas at the end of the season, the, the physical side of me says, especially for females, what are we doing on a strength side? And not necessarily even, you know, yes, there is a time and place for long and slow, but especially towards the end of a season or in the middle of a season when it starts to get super challenging and wearing, um, you're playing a lot of games, those are very high intensity. You want some stuff from a strength perspective that is almost more highly coordinated and faster and snappier, like remind the kids or remind their bodies that they are quick and they are fast and um, make sure you tell them that even if they aren't, you know, like you got to help build them up a little bit, but you're going to do things that, that coordinate them. So I talked about those med balls. We, we throw the med balls, right? We throw them straight up in the air. We scoop them up in the air. We throw them off of one leg. We slam them into the ground. We throw them behind, you know, over our head, just really trying to get them to, to fire and be fast. That doesn't take more than five or six minutes of, you know, kind of snappy coordination. They have fun doing it. Um, and all of a sudden, now their mental state of, you know, whether you're leaving the door and, you know, saying, okay, we'll see you tomorrow. But now they're, they're, they feel different when they leave practice, which I always feel like is helpful in getting them back into the gym in a very positive state also. Or, you know, and I've worked at high academic institutions you typically have to shake the day off the kids, right? Like they have mentally exhausted themselves and you got to get them out of that. And so we use some of this stuff in the beginning part, you know, we play games, um, you know, we play chicken tag and I have rubber chickens and they throw them around the, like, we just go back to being a kid a little bit and let them like use that 10 or 15 minutes to, they are developing athletically, whether you believe it or not but they're developing athletically, they're mentally refreshing, right? And probably the rest of the practice, even if you only have an hour, will be a higher level hour than if you strung them out for two, you know, and just did the same thing over and over again. You know, I, I even feel like when I'm in the middle of the season, you're just like, oh my gosh, we cannot do that layup drill again, right? Like <laughs> we need a different layup drill. Um, we need to introduce a different stimulus. We need to, you know, stuff like that. And um, that stuff is really helpful. So, you know, more of some stuff, less of some others, but yeah, I think the strength component from on a female side, for sure. Um, the snappy coordination, you know, high level, um, explosiveness stuff can always be super helpful. Um, and really trying to make sure that the practice isn't the same all the time, you know, like try not to mentally wear them out either. That would be, I guess, my my three things. <laughs> oh, those are all those are all great tips, and you're so right on the the mental aspects of of things of being able to, you know, students whether high school, college, they're working hard all day long. They've been, you know, all, and also they've probably been sitting for way longer than they should have, right? <laughs> yes. Which is a killer for for athletes, you know one of the biggest complaints I get with athletes that I work with is hips. My hips are tight. I'm like, yeah, I know. Cause we sit all day long and it's, it's a shame. Um, so yeah. being able to get that, that warm up in shake off the, the rust, right. Of however yeah. that, yeah. that day went can go really a long way. And then you said 
cutting some practice time back as the season goes on, but reinforcing the quick dynamic movements. And you're getting a lot of that in the beginning. I, I Man, that can't be understated. I think of some of the practices that I've had over all my years as a player. And I'm thinking, man, it would have been nice to to do some more of that because I know myself and my teammates yeah. at times were like, hey, we're just kind of, I don't feel like I'm in the same just, body yeah. that I was, you know, yeah. in, in November mm-hmm. or December. That can really make a long, um, make a big, big difference. With all that yeah. said. Days off too. <laughs> there you go. Days off are never bad either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's some active recovery, some day off, some rest can go a really long way mentally yeah. and physically. That's a, that's a great point. Um, with players, creating buy-in to whatever you're doing is key, regardless of whether it's focusing mm-hmm. on, you know, their, their strength and their conditioning, program, style of play. So how do you go about creating the buy-in with your team, with your basketball program, and then also with taking care of their bodies throughout the entire course of the year? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think the best way to do it is to do what we do best, right, is to coach them. Um, and when people know that you're truly invested in them, they have a tendency to respond, you know, a little bit. And some kids, it takes a little longer than others. But um, that's the best part about coaching on this level is you get them for four years. And, um, you know, the the change in the relationship that you have with kids every year is just it's I mean, it's one of the coolest things, you know, and so you get to watch them grow up a little bit, but your relationship with them changes. And so even the kids who are the most resistant um, to any aspect of it, um, you just, you find a way to keep coaching them. You find, you just got to find an inroad, right? Like whether it's their interest or whatever, I try and find from an athletic development standpoint, you start with their strengths, you know, and it's the same thing with basketball. It's not that different, but you know, everyone knows what they're bad at and what they're not good at. Right. And a lot of kids will tell you those, they'll lead with those things like, Oh, hi, I'm Carissa. And I'm really slow and not good at defense, you know, (laughs) instead of leading with the positive stuff. So really trying to get them to understand what they're good at and how do we make them better, you know, in those areas and what do they need? And then when we start to train the good stuff to be better, how does that get the, you know, whatever the caboose, the, the end of the train, the things that we aren't so good at, um, how does that get them kind of indirectly to improve? And so, um, you know, I, one of the phrases a mentor of mine um, used that I picked up on that I can't get rid of is you, you coach the hell out of them, you know, right? Like you just, you just keep coaching them. Um, you're positive with them. You, you, every time, and, and this is where the great coaches, right? They see the little things and the little things are the big things. We all know that. Like you, you, you see the difference in their movement from an athletic development standpoint. I think I'm really good at watching people move and figuring out how to not fix it because they're not broken. Everyone moves in their own way, but how to improve it maybe. And when they make that slight adjustment, when they get, you know, a millimeter more depth on that squat, when they get a little bit more shoulder range of motion, when they're reaching up, you, you have to catch it, right? Like you got it. Did you feel that one? Like, that was awesome. That was great range of motion. And all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, she's right. I, I did move better. Like, I did go lower in that squat and she caught it. And so now all of a sudden they know that you're watching them, that you're invested in them. Right. Like, and you get them because it matches up, right? Like what they felt and what I saw 
go together. Okay, awesome. So now we have a base, you know, that we can work off of. And so that's what I try to do. And I try to do it, you know, it is a challenge for me. And I, I, I will say, I, I, I love the coach that I have been able to become, but it is a challenge for my players quite often to see me as strength and conditioning, athletic development, coach C and head coach, head basketball coach, coach C and playing time is a big line between those two things. But when you coach them on the athletic development side, there is no playing time and the development is solely their own. It is, it is individual. And so even the kid that doesn't, isn't having a great season or isn't playing well at the time, that 15 minutes in the warm-up is you're in with them as a coach, right? Like that's where I can say, like, oh my gosh, she's winning the warm-up, guys. Like she's crushing it, you know, and and you keep them invested in the team by going in kind of with the athletic development stuff. And so you just try to keep coaching them, you know, you just try to keep giving them not too much feedback, but you just try to be positive, notice their movements, notice their improvements, um, notice when they're not just when they're doing stuff wrong, but when they're doing stuff well, you know, and just really try to, to hit on that as much as I possibly can. And that's, um, that's how I try to create it. <laughs> I think that's great because you're, you're seeing it and they don't know sometimes if you saw that or not, yeah. but you can pick it up. You have mm -hmm. a eye for that. When it comes to skill development, when I'm working with a player, I always try to pose it this way. If there's something that we're working on, maybe we're trying to tweak a specific skill. And instead of me saying, Hey, you did it. You did X, Y, Z. I always just ask, did you feel that? Did, how did that feel? Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of times one, when I say that they know I saw something, right. But I didn't tell them exactly. And then they get to verbalize what they actually felt and how that felt better or how it felt different. And then we can have a little bit of a conversation and it sounds like you're doing the exact same thing from an athletic development yeah, standpoint, totally. combined with the coaching side, which is why I think you have such a big, totally. like you got a big advantage with what the way that you're doing, doing your thing. And that that's just, that's right on the money. I, I love that. I want to ask one more kind of athletic development question uh, regarding girls basketball specifically. Then I want to pick your brain on a couple, sure. couple other things, but it's ACLs, yeah. you know, how, yeah. I can't remember the last stat I read was, you know, females are three to four times more likely to tear their ACL. Please correct me if I'm wrong on any of those stats compared to, to a, a, a boy or a man with some of the things that you do, how are you able to help girls in such a common area of injury? Yeah. So I don't, I don't know the answer specifically, right. Just like we don't know the answer to all the ACLs, but um, I know I've listened, read, um, um, heard, I mean, this has been a, a um, you know, it, it is a major piece of everything that you do as an athletic development coach, if you are working with females, right. And it's been around for at least as long as I've been learning in this field. And so um, there are a lot of things, right. I think one of the things that, one of the things that is new that a lot of people aren't talking about is training age. Um, and when you talk about a female, what is her training age compared to the male counterpart? And I think it's also um, really interesting because most of the ACL research that you will find is done with injured females, but most of the athletic development, strength and conditioning studies that you'll find are done with men. 
or boys, right? And so you're comparing, you're not comparing the same things because they aren't the same. Um, and so it's, it, you got to be careful with some of that stuff, but the incidence rates of it, you know, the reality of it is, is real, you know, so there are a lot of ACL injuries. Um, the stuff that I train and I program, it, I can't tell you which piece of it is the most important. I don't know that there is one, um, but I do a lot of what people would call functional or dynamic, whatever buzzword you want to use, but it is moving your body weight to the best of your ability. And we squat, we lunge, we land, we, um, we do a ton of push-ups and pull-ups because postural stability is critical. Um, and I don't know which piece of this it is, but I've, I had two ACLs come in a year ago to my program. They happened before they got to me. They both retore it. I think they, I don't think they were, either of them were ready to go. And then the only other ACLs I've had in my entire coaching career are, belong to the same two people, right? They both tore both ACLs. And, and so I don't have a lot of those, but I don't know. I can't tell you exactly why. Um, I just know that the stuff that people that I think are brilliant in these athletic development areas, um, I steal what they do and I do it. And I try to, like I said, coach the heck out of it. And, um, and, you know, over the course of the span that I'm with them, it seems to work, you know, um, it, I don't know. I don't know what the piece is, but I do know that you got to get people to be able to stabilize and, um, and understand how they move. Um, and when you get into, and this is one of the reasons that we do a lot of competitive drills is that you can't get a kid to go full speed if you're not, I, I find it very challenging to get them to truly go full speed if they're not competing. And Carol Lawson has a whole big talk about why that is. <laughs> um, but it, you've got kids get themselves into some pretty awkward positions. If you ever slow a game down and watch, um, just watch one individual move in a basketball game for two minutes and all the different awkward positions they get themselves in reaching, um, lunging, you know, people talk about the knee over the toe and <laughs> you're doing that all the time. You don't realize it. Um, but you got to get them in those positions in training so that their body knows what to do. And we do a lot of that stuff. And, um, you know, like I mentioned a lunge and reach series that it, it's not mine. I, I stole it from the guy who kind of got me into this is Vern Gambetta. And um, if anyone wants to know, you know, kind of where, where I started with all of this, he has a book called, I carry it with me. It's called athletic development. It's probably 40 years old, 30 years old by Vern Gambetta and he has a lunge and reach series and every sports played on, on two feet, but you're rarely ever on two feet at the same time. You know, you jump off of one, you land on one, you cut off of one, you transfer weight from one to the other, um, running, sprinting, changing direction. You're always changing from one side to the other. You know, your gait patterns really have to be really strong. And so I try to do whatever I can to make their gait patterns better, um, to make their weight transfers better, to get their bodies to understand what that feels like to exaggerate it, to slow it down, to speed it up, to, you just try and do all that stuff and you mix it up as much as possible. And, um, you hope you make them 
I don't know, robust tends to be a buzzword right now too. You tend to, you want to make them more robust as an athlete. It's not injury prevention. It's just being an athlete, you know? Um, that's why I go back to a lot of physical education, like elementary school, physical education game, you know, play and tag, um, great way to get people to change direction, change speeds, um, make them skip and play tag, make them side shuffle and play tag, you know, um, you'll get them into some pretty, but you're going to train that body how to figure out different movement problems. And that's all competition is. If you really broke down competition, it's just trying to navigate different movement patterns that you may or may not have been in before. And we hope that we put them in as many as we possibly can before they get to that point. And it seems like that when you throw competition in with various movement patterns, now it becomes game-like and there's randomization to the competition, which the athlete now has determined at a split second, which way to cut and move. And if they can practice that of what they're actually going to be doing in the game, it seems like they would be more likely to reduce injury. I'm assuming. Yeah. It, um, the reaction component is major. Um, and it's so simple, you know, you can train reactions so easily. That's why we play a lot of tag games because you have this constantly evolving, um, environment that they, that they always have to react to, you know? And so you have them running around and you just throw objects up to them. They won't run into each other. You're going to think they're going to, right? But like they won't run into each other and they're going to figure it out. And it's that split second that they took their eye to the ball you threw them while there's other people running around that when they catch that ball and put their eyes back on what's in their surroundings using their peripheral vision, it's that moment when your foot hits the ground that truly is like kind of the main thing, you know, like if you can figure out that reaction and get your brain, your, your body can know from its habits, from what you've trained it to do, how to navigate that situation. When you have all this stimulus going on, that's now we're talking about keeping kids safer and, um, you know, not having that stuff. And I just, and to kind of circle back and to tie it in, that's where you get into training age, right? And how much, how many females are doing that? A lot of females are playing their sport all the time year round. That's, that's not training, that's competing, right? And so there is more to making you robust than just co competing. And so the training age is real. The training age is, is, I don't know, that really has my interest over the last probably seven or eight months. And um, I've had quite a lot of time on my hands with the pandemic to, you know, read and listen to a lot of that stuff. But, you know, you really got to think about how, how much has this individual trained, you know, and, and how, what does that mean in terms of their, their movement ability, their athleticism? Um, but again, not compete. Compete it can be wearing if you do it too much. And so, you know, there are other avenues into this, um, you know, this athletic development sphere, you know, it's not just compete. Um, that should be one phase, you know? So yeah, anyways. <laughs> oh, that's great stuff. And it, as you mentioned with your practice plans, you know, there's teaching, there's the training and there's the competing aspect. And to me, it seems like that should be all the way through. And as you mentioned, you're doing, you're doing mm -hmm. teach, train, compete with your college athletes. But if you got a junior high girl, or boy, who's just compete, compete, compete. Well, no wonder their body's yeah. wearing down and they're, they're coming to you with knee injuries mm -hmm. or whatever else they, they may have. That's, 
That's so key. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and pick your brain before sure. we finish up the podcast, but I do want to mention, I want to get that luncheon reach series. That sounds really, really good. I did, I did lunges for a year straight recently. I did a minimum 100, 150 lunges every day. I don't know if that's something I'd recommend, yeah. but um, <laughs> I've noticed a huge uh, difference in my lower back pain, knee pain, hip and joints. Um, yeah. I started, I'm going to go on a short, real short tangent here. I started lunging like volume lunges, like 200 meters, 400 meters, half mile lunges back in 2015, um, because I wasn't a big fan of running a whole lot, mm -hmm. but I still wanted something that felt like, it's kind of like when I do a volume series of lunges, it felt like I was in the weight room, but I was also running sprints and I kind of put them, put them together. And that's kind of the jello -y feeling. And I really liked it. Um, yeah. Meaning I hated it, but I could feel that yeah, totally. the, the, I really liked the, the results. So, um, yeah, so I'm always looking at different lunge variations and, and stuff to do yeah. different angles, backwards, forward, side to side. I'm yeah. really going to have to yeah. check, check that out. You said you run a really unique style of the dribble drive offense. So mm. I know we could probably do a full podcast interview on just the <laughs> offense itself, but in a few moments, I know this is something that would interest a lot of people. What makes your version of the dribble drive unique? I, I don't even know if it's unique, but I don't, uh, I, it's pretty pure. Um, it's almost exactly um, the way that Vance Wahlberg, you know, I like, I mean, straight from his videos, that's how I, that's how I coach it. So there isn't any screening action. There is a lot of changing speeds, which as an athletic development coach, I feel like I can teach that pretty well. So we go from, you know, stand still, stay patient in the corner when you're being dribbled at to, oh, your defender moved up. Fine. You can backdoor. That's fine. Um, you know, so I just, I think it's very true. Um, and I, I just try to follow the rules and I found that that tends to work for us um, or it has in the past. Um, you know, and you try to, we move people around quite a bit, um, you know, and I will probably the only other piece that is truly unique is I don't mind putting like our best layup finisher at the basket. Now, of course, it helps if they have some size, but some of our best, um, we call it the four, um, some of our best fours who is the only player who's allowed inside the arc is it has been 510, you know, and they've just been really good finishers. Um, and so what we try to do is keep the, the defense super off balance. And so we are really very thoughtful in our square ups, you know, like that's a huge deal for us. You got to look like you're going to do something, you know, whether it's drive or shoot, but that defense, when they're running out to you, cause everyone's running out to you, how are you going to freeze them? You know, um, is it with your drive or with your jab step or is it with your shot fake? And so we work a lot on that. I'm very, uh, I am a stickler when it comes to dribbles and making sure that they are effective. I don't want any useless dribbles that allows defense to recover. Um, you know, and you have kind of these split second moments where you have to make good decisions and hopefully the right decisions. Um, and I also think it's really challenging for kids to, um, to play our dribble drive because 
on the college level, you know, everything's bigger, faster, stronger, and the players are better. Um, and I find that the AAU programs that run the dribble drive are, uh, it's like full speed run at the basket as hard as you can and chuck something up. And there's a lot of falling involved. Like kids are falling over. Like I never want a kid to fall. You should never be that out of control. Um, you know, and if you can't, you know, don't even get yourself to that point really. Um, so it, I, it's not, it's not unique and it's not rocket science, but it is super true to like, you're going to jump stop. You're going to square your shoulders. You're going to pass that ball. Um, you know, we're not just going to wing it, you know, like it's just, it's just very true, I would say. And I think a lot of people like the dribble drive for quick hitters and stuff like that, but that just, it just is our offense. Um, so we kind of, and it is hard to defend. I tell you what, you get a couple you know, one or two dribble drives into the rack zone, you kick it out, you make somebody charge out at you, then you attack them again. You get three of those, the defense is pretty exhausted. Um, so if we can get three of those attacks in a possession, I love our chances of getting a wide open layup. Yeah, the consecutive actions, multiple actions, yeah. making the defense expand, contract, rotate, you're mm -hmm. going to get something good. And I was listening to a podcast with Vance Wahlberg and it's like, you know, some people that, you know, just hear the name and they think we're pounding the air out of the ball it's no we're, we're yeah, spacing yeah. we're cutting yes. there's minimal dribbles per catch with the player yes. and their purposeful dribbles and, and when we do it that way it's going to lead yeah. to some success no no doubt about it i love it. yeah um, we, we don't even actually call it the dribble drive for that reason and he talks about this you know it's attack attack skip attack attack um it's awesome you know or we don't even talk about like we just it's north you know like here's our this is Anytime we're in north, this is what we're doing. And there's no screening action. There's nothing. You know, you just got to know kind of we're in it because dribble drive is a super misnomer. I think people have kind of run with the dribbling, you know. <laughs> yeah, I was just talking with a coach yesterday about the screening. Is one of the reasons that, you know, just that, that you don't use as many screens is our team's getting really good at just switching the screen? I think there's just a lot of things. And I think um, I find, I mean, I'm in a rhythm now with it too. I've been teaching it for about seven or eight years. And so I'm in a rhythm with it, but um, you know, I, I think there's a lot in terms of scheme um, that you can do. And I think, um, you know, I tell our defense, I love when people set ball screens because it allows us to bring two defenders to the ball and I don't think it should get out. Um, so, you know, the opposite is true on, uh, on the offensive side. Like I, I want to use, like you were saying, I want to use space. Um, I want to be really super fundamental and um, make one-on-one -on -one defenders. Cause that, I mean, closing out is the hardest thing to do in basketball, right? Like there's Amen. all these arguments fly by, <laughs> you know, like chop down, like no one knows what to do. So like, let's make them do that as many times as we possibly can and let's make one defender do it. And so I do think it's easy to pick on bad matchups, you know, or advantageous matchups, you know, in our situation, when we're talking about our offense, like who's not very good at closing out and let's make sure they get it or an early catch in the offense. And then they're going to, they're not going to score necessarily, but they're going to be the creator, the one that's going to drive the rest of the offense. Like what's the matchup that we're going to take advantage of, um, you know, that type of thing. So that's, that's kind of how we, we think about it, but yeah, I don't, we, of course we have some quick hitters and we do some things with screening action that is separate. We have a separate ball screen action. If the, if, you know, the dribble drive stuff isn't, um, isn't working for, 
you know, whatever reason. Um, but yeah, I mean, for the most part, we're, we're not running any screening action just because like you said, the switching, um, I love matchups, but there's also not enough time. And, and I spend a lot of time on the athletic development stuff and, and making sure that we're conditioned, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, you could talk for hours about screen defense and how to, how, you know, like in our league in the UA, I mean, there were pretty consistently three and four player rotations. And I just found that that was like a, a lot to teach our kids to beat. you know, like I knew where the open player was and I could say like, no, go through this ball screen and skip it, you know, like, but what fun is that? You know, like they want to read it and see it. And it just is very different than teaching the dribble drive. So I kind of, it's not all eggs in one basket, but it kind of, you know, it is. I, I spend our time reading individual closeouts and defenses rather than reading two defenders in a screen action and having to coordinate with your teammate on what's, what's right, what's wrong. You roll, I slip, like there's a lot. <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree a hundred percent. And, and as you said, spending time to read closeouts because I mean, all you have to do is go on Twitter and hear a handful of really high level coaches disagree on how to close out, right? Whether it's fly by, you know, you, you want to chop step, you want to go into more of a, a hard, like, you know, and people that research and study it and they're still not going to, to agree on it. So what does that tell me? Yeah. One way or another, we're just going to make the other team close out <laughs> as many times, yes. as, as, many times as we can. A couple of questions as we, as we finish out the, the episode, if when you're scouting another team, mm -hmm. are you more likely to fit the other team to your personnel defensively and what you believe? Or are you more likely mm -hmm. to say, oh, they run a really great ball screen, this specific player in tandem, we're going to, you know, double it every time. And that might be totally different from what you might do, you know, four days later for your next regular season game. Um, no, we, we, uh, we play by our rules all, okay. almost all the time. I mean, it is a really rare situation that we don't. Um, and that's why I have a zone, you know, <laughs> like, um, it, I, I think defensively we play similarly to coach Mo at Hope. And, um, you know, I'm asking them to play at a really high intensity on, both ends of the floor, to be honest. And so you've got your training reactions. And I think if you're going to mix up the, the scheme, you're not going to get the intensity that you need when you want it. So I'm not going to mess with that. So I'm going to say, you know, like if we're jumping a ball screen, that's, that's our ball screen defense. And it's going to take a real, like, it's going to take a lethal, we will, we will lose if we don't adjust this. Um, situation before we try to do that and um kind of subscribe to that easy to scout hard to beat type of thing like that's mm -hmm. what we try and do you know it's not hard to figure out what we do um but i hope we can make it super challenging to beat us even though you know what's coming at you um you know that type of thing so yeah definitely um you know and every team is interesting because they do some teams have you know this great point guard or they have we have this great post player you know and so every every scout is different and interesting um but our scheme is really going to try and stay the same and we're just going to amp up different parts of uh our defense if we need to or talk about how um you know where the focus really lies based on the the majority of the things that they run 
um, you know, and what we think they'll run against us. It also pushes teams. A lot of teams have a tendency to run the same things against us. Um, so what you end up doing when you, if you can be really good at what you do, people will try to create new ways to beat you, but now you've also taken them out of their game plan. So I find that it, it's beneficial both ways, right? So now those kids are doing things that they wouldn't normally do trying to beat a defense that they don't particularly want to go against, you know? So I, I think that's a win-win. <laughs> Absolutely. Easy to scout, hard to beat, as you said, and it's much more the mindset of, hey, they got to match us right? Instead of us trying to figure out yeah. what, what they're trying to do. Yeah. And I think that gives your players, you know, puts them at ease a little bit, right? That, hey, they have yeah. to come in here yeah. and they have to figure out how, you know, they're going to play against our, our zone when they run the ball screen instead of us trying to change everything on a game-to-game -game basis. That's great. Sure. Last question. Okay. If you could give two, three pieces of advice to a coach who they're just trying to get the, the most out of their team, it could be athletic development, it could be running a program in general, but what is some advice that you give to them or even what's advice you'd give to your younger self when you started out in the coaching game? Uh, first things have fun, right? Um, it, make it enjoyable and, and it is just a game and there are far reaching implications for games in our society and in our culture, right? And it's, it's pretty amazing how important games are um, to kind of the, the things that we are dealing with as a society. So have fun. And because um, I do think the world would be a better place if more people played team sports. Um, so have fun and make it enjoyable because, um, you know, you want people to participate because it is, it is important. Um, and it, it is a big deal to learn how to be a part of a team, but no one wants to be a part of a team if it isn't fun. And if you're not enjoying it at the top, then they won't either. And so just to really make sure that you're enjoying it and showing that really, um, really clearly showing them that you're enjoying, you know, the day to day of it. Um, so that would be my first thing. Um, I don't know. That's a great question. Um, my younger self would definitely be to, you know, relax a little bit more and probably show that I'm having fun a little bit more. I think um, it's one of the things that I've settled into as I've gotten older is just like the stress of, you know, I used to get crazy at, at walkthroughs and scouts about like, oh, she doesn't know the game plan and, you know, you misstep there and, don't you know we're, we're doing this and, you know, stuff like that. And, um, you know, it's, it's not worth it. <laughs> you put your kids on edge and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So I think it's really, you know, it goes back to that having fun component and making sure that, um, you know, they, they learn from you or they can kind of follow your lead in a lot of ways. And um, maybe that leads me into my last one is just that, uh, I think it's super important. I don't think it's possible to coach like anyone else. I think you have to coach like you um, and figuring out what that is. And um, I, I, like I said, I, I love who I have been able to become as a result of the people that I have been around. And um, I, I just, I think it's great. It just makes me want to keep being around them and keep learning from them. And so whoever those people are for you, 
dive in and, and figure out how you can make certain things work for you, but don't try to be somebody else. Um, just be you because the, the authenticity piece goes right along with having fun. And if you're faking having fun, um, the kids will see right through you, just like they'll see right through you. If you don't really believe in a scheme that you've come up with or in any other thing, you know, you got to really be true and authentic to who you are. You got to be genuine and sincere and all those words and stuff like that. Just really figuring out who you are as a coach. Um, I think that's super important. Those are three great pieces of advice. You know, have fun, relax, be yourself uh, from a coaching standpoint. Also, if our players can do the same thing, they're going to enjoy it much, much more. I think, yeah. especially at the youth level, there's so much pressure on winning and the competing aspect yeah. that we're driving we're driving so many kids out of the game before they actually get get up and say, hey, let's yeah. let's have fun. Let's learn how to to practice and improve our, our skills and have fun with that instead of, you know, you go to a yeah. game and the one team's pressing when they're up 50 in the, you know, of a AU game. And you're like, all right, nobody's nobody's yeah. getting better here. And yeah. half the other team, they don't want to yeah, play the, anymore anyway. The the cell of the grind, like I see it a lot in basketball specifically. Now, granted, that's the environment that I'm in. And I don't, I don't know if it happens in, you know, soccer or whatever, but like there is this thought that it's like, you got to work and it's a grind and, you know, it's, it's hard and why can't it be fun? Um, I don't know. <laughs> you know, like, why can't we make it enjoyable and can't we work hard and have fun? Um, you know, I, I think it would grow the game a little bit more if, if we had more fun. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, I absolutely agree a hundred percent. And when you're, when you're talking with players, I like to say, listen, you're the best in the world at one thing. They kind of look at you and they're like, what do you, what do you mean? You're the best in the world at one thing and that's being you and nobody else's mm -hmm. God didn't make you just like anybody else. Right. So stop trying yeah. to be somebody else. You're, you're the best mm -hmm. as long as you stay true to yourself and yeah. You know, that that gives I think players a little more confident confidence to yes. be in their own skin, you know. And if, yeah. if you're yeah. comfortable in your own skin, then you can be the best that that you can be. So that's a big deal. Yeah, for sure. It's great advice, Coach. Thanks for being on the podcast. This was this was awesome. I love picking Anytime. your brain, talking about the Absolutely. athletic development side of things. I'm always curious to learn more about that that aspect. So I can't thank you enough for being on the Coach's Edge podcast. Oh, anytime. Thank you so much. I'm flattered to, to be on. So thanks for asking me and um, thanks for continuing to grow the game. I think it's important for um, for us to have this, this ability, you know, with podcasts and Twitter and social media. I think this is a great way to make use of all of those outlets. Um, even when I don't find them to be all that beneficial, these are the, like the, the gold um, that you can find in there. And so thank you for doing what you do. Thank you very much, Coach. Thank you for listening to this episode. There were a ton of great takeaways. One of the many that I really liked was breaking down in-season practices. And she talked about the teaching, the training, the competing aspect, and how when we look at our practice plans in that way, it can really help us design a practice that best suits our team, especially depending on what part of the year it is. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it out with somebody else. And if you want to support the Coach's Edge podcast as we continue to grow the website, the podcast, 
it's as simple as leaving a positive rating and review if you're on an Apple phone or simply just subscribing wherever you listen to your podcast. And we hope to continue to build the coach's edge and teach, share, and learn the game right along with you. Thanks again and get after it today.